Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 226 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, I'm joined by Pariko Grilish, founder and director of Mickle Distillery in Galway, Ireland. He and his brother have evolved and scaled a family distilling tradition that dates back to his great-great-great-grandfather Mickle, who produced illicit spirits on a Connemara hillside near the shores of Galway, Ireland, way back in 1848. These days, things look a little different for Parik and the team at Mickle Distillery, but there's still quite a bit to be learned about Pachin, Ireland's native spirit, through the rich storytelling tradition of Western Ireland. Our regular listeners may be wondering about the wrap-up, the part two of the Margarita audio essay I've been promising for the last couple weeks. At this point, I guess all I can say is that good things come to those who wait. My research process has come to involve hundreds of browser tabs, and there's so many cocktail recipes flying around at this point that I needed to make a spreadsheet to keep them all straight. You, dear listener, will no doubt be the recipient and the beneficiary of all this research, but I don't want to rush it because, simply put, the margarita deserves better than that. So stay tuned. The margarita will return before long, but for now... Let's give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Tipperary. To make it, you'll need one and a half to two ounces of Irish whiskey, one ounce sweet vermouth, one half ounce green chartreuse, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Combine these ingredients in a mixing beaker with ice, stir until everything is well chilled and properly diluted, then strain into a chilled stemmed cocktail glass, Garnish with an expressed orange twist and enjoy. This recipe dates back to the second decade of the 20th century with entries in books by such influential writers as Hugo Enslin and Harry Macalone, and it has recently been revived and tweaked by the good folks at the Dead Rabbit in New York City. Essentially, the Tipperary is an Irish whiskey bijou, with the whiskey taking the place of gin and the Angostura bitters replacing orange bitters, but hey, Listen, if a Manhattan and a Martini can play this game, then I don't see any reason why the Bijou and the Tipperary can't trade base spirits and modifiers with similar success. So, now that you've got a complex, classic cocktail to warm you from the inside out, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating conversation with Parik O'Grillish, founder and director of Mickle Distillery, some of the topics we discuss include... The history of distilled spirits in Ireland, with special attention to how pretty much every law or distilling practice somehow ties back to evading unjust taxes. What it was like for Parik growing up in a family where distilling was practiced and taught using the oral tradition, and how his grandfather's role as a shanaki, a storyteller, had a massive impact on the way he tells stories using flavor. We also dig into the history and common misconceptions surrounding Poitzin, 
Ireland's original endemic spirit and Mickle Distillery's flagship product. In particular, we cover what it's made with, how long it can be aged, and why Parik and his team throw a local botanical called bog bean into the still whenever they make a batch. Of course, we also spend some time talking about the whiskey making and barrel aging initiatives at Mickle, which benefits from being located in Galway, a city with a centuries-old tradition of sourcing excellent casks from mainland Europe. Along the way, we cover the influence of crop rotation on Poitzine mash bills, how to repair a still using porridge, incantations for confusing the police, and much, much more. Parik and his team are at a really exciting point in the evolution of their growth right now. They've successfully taken a renegade distilling operation and turned it into a successful licensed company, and they've got some excellent plans for growth that we cover toward the end of this episode. I'm personally very excited to get my hands on some of the Mickle Distillery products, including their gin, which just won Best Contemporary Irish Gin at the 2022 World Gin Awards. But for now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this fascinating conversation with Parik O'Grillish, founder and director of Mickle Distillery. Parik, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. Thanks for having me. So could you please kick us off by introducing yourself? Just tell our listeners who you are, where you are, and what you do. Very good. Uh, the latter one is kind of a tough question, but uh, I should be able to answer the rest of them uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, so we're based here in uh, today in, in sunny Salt Hill. Uh, so the, the weather isn't always uh, this, this pleasant here in, in the west of Ireland. Uh, so we're in <coughs> Galway, which is the, the capital city, I, I guess, of the west of Ireland. And uh, so Mikkel uh, Distillery is the first operating whiskey distillery in Galway in over 100 years. And um, so, so I'm Parik, of course, and uh, I suppose the original uh, modern founder, if you want to call it, uh, of uh, the distillery, uh, which uh, officially started in 2016. But uh, we have a much longer family lineage in distilling uh, than this generation. So my brother and I, we're the sixth generation of distillers in our family. But the tradition goes uh, way back to our great-great-great-grandfather's time. Mikkel uh, was his name, and that's a first name. So we have uh, Ireland's longest unbroken family distilling tradition today. So it's well over 170 years old. And uh, so that's that's us, I guess, in a, in a nutshell. Brilliant. Yes, I like the the distinction of uh, modern founders. Uh, I, th- I think that we'll get into some of the backstory as we go here. Uh, initially, I reached out to you quite a while ago because I was interested in Puccine. And I, I think maybe we should start by uh, looking into the pronunciation there because no I've problem. heard it pronounced Puccine. Uh and I've also listened to interviews that you've done where you kind of emphasize the S, the putzine. Uh So as somebody who produces this stuff, how should our American listeners be pronouncing this distillate? I, I think your American listeners uh, value authenticity. And uh, it is an Irish uh, word, as in from the Irish language. And uh, first of all, the etymology is uh, it comes from the Irish word for pot, which is putta. 
and then a small pot is poutine. So anything made in a small pot still. And uh, I, I think if they want to go with the Irish language version, then uh, poutine is the easy. Well, sorry, it's not probably the easy one. Uh, it's the it's the more authentic one. Uh, there's nothing wrong, by the way, with the anglicized forms, which are pachin or pochin. But I think most people these days uh, value uh, the authentic version. So I let them make up their own minds as to which version to go with. Uh, you're an independent country yourselves, and um, you also uh, share uh, that piece of history with us, uh, the fact that you also had to gain your independence, uh, albeit that you have a, a longer span of independence than we do. So I'm guessing from that perspective that your listeners will like the un-anglicized version. Sure. And... I think that there's an interesting thread that I'd like to maybe just jump right into here, connecting some of the American native, what we might call rebel distilling operations here in the United States with some of the distilling traditions in Ireland, specifically the ones that are responsible for Poutine. And so I was wondering if you might, since we're talking about independence from the British Empire, uh, maybe just give us a little bit of background about the distillate that you produce. Obviously, you have uh, you have a gin, you have some some aged Irish whiskeys, uh, but specifically when it comes to poutine, can you back us into that by maybe talking about why it was a bit of a rebellious thing to make in the first place, and maybe how that eventually ties in with some of the things that we here in the U.S. call moonshine absolutely so uh, we've already touched i suppose on uh, what poutine means uh, the spirit of the small pot still or simply small pot still the the original i suppose if you want to call it words or words that we used here in ireland uh, come from the latin uh, aquavitae so some monks first of all brought uh, aquavitae to ireland and uh, the manuscripts then show the translation of that and that became uh, ishkebaha and uh, just uh, for fear of ambiguity, that means water of life. And over time then, that was um, shortened into one word, it became fushke. Uh, interestingly, that's the word that we use in the Irish language today to describe both poutine or modern day Irish whiskey. So uh, we use poutine and fushke. Uh, interchangeably and of course fushki means the water of life as does whiskey and uh, the first written date we have of uh, this spirit is 1324 and uh, no surprises I'm sure your listeners are very uh, familiar with this territory but uh, that does uh, make us uh, the inventors of whiskey um, so our, our Scottish neighbours of course uh, make wonderful whiskey but uh, there's approximately 60 years of a gap between us just to make that one clear. But anyway, uh, even to this day in Irish-speaking regions, we use the term fushke, which does encapsulate both uh, poutine and whiskey. And I guess uh, just in a a short uh, one sentence, uh, the thing that separated the two was the buying of a license. So we'll touch, we'll we'll jump into that one now in a second. But um, we've started, I think, with the initial date. So what happened was, uh, once the monks learned how to do it, documented it, etc., it then spread to the, the rest of the population, the craft, uh, the craft of making uh, spirits, the craft of fushke making, uh, poutine making, whiskey making, whatever term you prefer to use at this point. So we're, we're talking about the, the same thing. They were all the same uh, back then. Then you get to a point when we, are, uh, we were under British control in uh, 1661 and they decided to tax uh, the making or the distilling of alcohol. And uh, 
you can appreciate, I suppose, uh, our perspective on it, that we uh, didn't really feel like paying these taxes, uh, you know, to our, uh, I suppose, oppressor, um, if you want to call it, <laughs> oppressor government. So uh, most people decided to evade the payment of tax. So obviously this frustrated, uh, you know, British Parliament a huge amount. And uh, eventually the laws just became stricter and the fines became heftier. So then, you know, we land at a point when in 1760, Parliament decided to ban the domestic distilling of alcohol. So up until then, you didn't have to have a license to make alcohol. You were just expected to pay your taxes. But because by and large, most of us rebelled against the payment of taxes because we felt that this was, uh, you know, uh, a, a right that we would be able to make our own alcohol and not pay tax on it. But anyway, it became a licensed activity, you know, in, in a formal way from that year on. And that's formally when putteen was banned or the domestic distilling of alcohol. And that remained the case up until 1997, uh, believe it or not. And one multinational company lobbied government at the time to to uh, permit the making of putteen, uh, at least to, to be able to label a product called putteen. And uh, that opened the doors, you know, once that happened. So you can kind of trace the, the development then of what we call, uh, I suppose, modern day Irish whiskey, you know, from that period of 1661 onwards, uh, we, we then have a tradition of more, urban and industrial distilleries setting up and of course uh, no surprises uh, this is all for control of uh, taxation so the tax collectors and the government uh, wanted to make tax collecting as efficient and as easy as possible so they said no more domestic distilling no more small distilleries just big distilleries in urban locations let's keep this easy uh, and they still had struggles you know they really struggled with the quality of whiskey during uh, that period and uh, they they you know, made some silly rules that uh, forced the distillers to make uh, whiskey quickly. And I'm sure as you and your listeners know, making whiskey quickly is a bad idea. It ended up, uh, you know, making rough whiskey. And then, of course, they had to reverse many of these decisions or find ways around them. So, for instance, uh, rather than taxing uh, the distilleries based on the, um, I suppose, what they produced, they decided to tax them on their potential output. So what was the maximum output? They just basically taxed them on that. So this meant that uh, they were paying tax on stuff that they didn't even produce. So what did they do? They tried to push more product through more quickly, and it led to a rough spirit. And uh, poutine sales, funnily enough, uh, went uh, upwards rather than uh, downwards. So they were having uh, the opposite effect that they wanted. Now, of course, with the invention then of the spirit safe, uh, that, I suppose, you know, left the control once again in the hands of the tax collectors. The only people who had the keys to the spirit safe were actually the tax collectors, not the distillery owners or the head distillers or anything like it. Um, and the other, I suppose, key thing is that um, this guy called Anius Coffee, which uh, you're probably familiar with or your listeners are familiar with, the guy who quit his tax collecting career to become an inventor of a new piece of technology called the coffee still, he uh, revolutionized whiskey and, and spirits around the world. But uh, he was the one who advised government to let the whiskey distillers pay tax on the spirit when it came out of t- when it came out of cask, as opposed to when it went into it. So in eighteen twenty three, uh, or pre eighteen twenty three, the law was you pay tax on whiskey when it comes off the still. Post eighteen twenty three, because of Annie's Coffee's advice to Parliament, they decided to allow the distillers to pay the tax on the whiskey when it came out of cask. And the, the big result there, and this is intentional, is that they would encourage uh, the spirit to be aged. 
So we, we may think that whiskey has been aged forever, uh, but we can trace the early sort of aged whiskey to, to that date. Now, that's not to say that we weren't aging any whiskey at all before then, but that's when it became advantageous from a tax perspective to do it. My goodness, that is uh, is quite a mouthful. That's uh, and, and all of it, it seems... Uh, <laughs> kind of ties back to the notion of taxation. And, you know, when we keep in mind that we're talking about something that we refer to as the water of life, it seems in that respect somewhat essential. And so, you know, the question then becomes like, you know, why, why am I, you know, if, if I value this thing and view it as so essential that I call it the water of life, one might begin to understand why people's feathers were ruffled on having to suddenly pay taxes on it. So I, I appreciate the fact that you were able to kind of not only give us the history of Poutine, but also explain it relative to some of those big historical moments that some of our maybe whiskey fans in general might be uh, familiar with, uh, such as Aeneas Coffee and, and the coffee still, uh, kind of the beginning of continuous distillation there. So... Let's talk about your family and and your operation. You know, we know that this had to be after 1997 when uh, we finally were able to create Poutine legally again. But when did you first get the idea that it may be time to formalize and, you know, create a company and, and start putting some money and some resources behind this project of creating your own spirits? Yeah, so look, we were very fortunate, uh, you know, my brother and I in particular, that we grew up uh, around this tradition. So um, our grandparents uh, were literally next door, and it meant that uh, we um, spent a lot of time with our with our grandfather. And uh, I suppose he was a very influential figure. Uh, he was uh, a natural storyteller. Uh, so in, in, in Ireland, he would be known as a Shanachy. Uh, a title that he would never use himself, by the way, but uh, others would use it uh, for him. And uh, Shalachi is uh, a, a storyteller um, and uh, a person, I suppose, who preserves wisdom from um, previous generations. And, and this is the, the oral tradition, I suppose, of folklore. Yeah, very rich uh, tradition there. And, uh, you know, again, uh, very well able to uh, to tell stories in a in an interesting engaging kind of way and uh, back then uh, you know during his time in particular uh, storytelling was the way of passing on the uh, the wisdom from one generation to the next and even in terms of uh, situations in life how do you deal with uh, this particular situation how do you react and uh, how should you behave in a certain situation it was all interwoven in the stories uh, so modern day parenting is very much uh, well this is how you do it or that's how you do it but this was a very subtle way of um you know imparting uh, this piece of knowledge without being i you know i told you so it's it was in the stories so it was an indirect way of uh, explaining how best to uh to, to deal with certain situations, etc. But um, yeah, so very influential uh, guy, and uh, have fond, very fond memories of uh, you know spending time with him on the farm and uh, learning everything there is to do with uh, putting and uh, turf cutting and uh, stone wall building and uh, looking after livestock and uh, breaking in horses, etc. It's all part of uh, rural Connemara living and uh, you know it, it it all comes as one package uh, you can't uh, have an a la carte uh, type uh, scenario 
but uh, in any case, uh, you know, lucky, uh, I suppose, from an early age to hear the stories of Putin and then sort of as you got older, you'd get more opportunity to see what went on. And finally, the opportunity, as opposed to look after the, the still. And, you know, he, he did uh, put trust, uh, I suppose, in his uh, in his grandkids, I suppose, uh, where that was um, appropriate. Uh, so he, he uh, it wouldn't be kind of uh, off you go, but you'd be very, uh, how to put it, uh, you'd be monitored until he thought you had uh, everything down to a T. But, you know, you'd always get this feedback, you know, yeah, just adjust that a bit or do this or uh, try that, you know, and uh, eventually then you'd be mastering your craft. So uh, that's, that's how it went. And, of course, then you'd be, uh, given uh, almost full uh, free reign. And then eventually, I suppose, when we set up uh, legitimately then in 2016, he uh, was the head of uh, what we call quality control. He'd be getting a, a bottle of uh, something every week, whether it was poutine or gin or whiskey. And um, so we, we'll go back to the gin story in a moment. But, uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, that there was a question about it earlier. But uh, so... That was, uh, I suppose, a bit of the learning curve. You know, it, it was just a part of uh, growing up in, in Connemara. And, uh, you know, really uh, great stories. Uh, I might, might tell you one or two of them. Stories from the previous generations and close calls and uh, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, certainly uh, there was one story um, that I haven't actually told uh, very frequently, but there was an occasion, and it's early in the last uh, century, um, so we're, we're talking 19, 1930s, we'll say 1940s, uh, there, there was a, a still being run uh, approximately uh, two miles from uh, the old uh, family home. And um, they, they, they got word that uh, the police uh, or the peelers were on the way and uh, there wasn't really enough time to dismantle the still. Uh, so they basically just, uh, you know, left the still and hoped that they wouldn't, uh, that the police wouldn't discover the still. And look, you know, we're, we're not uh, particularly uh, superstitious or whatnot, but, uh, uh, or particularly religious or whatever, but uh, there was a, a specific prayer and uh, don't ask me how to translate it. I will do my best to, to, to uh, translate it, but uh, um, it, it's different to a prayer. It's, it's uh, probably more... Um, I don't know if, it, if it's called, uh, it's a, like a mantra almost, but uh, it's called Ara Andalamu. Re- really, it translates as, uh, I suppose, a, a mantra or a prayer to uh, disorientate uh, the police or whoever your enemies were. So um, I, I can't remember which family member actually uh, said the prayer. Um, I, I actually, I believe it was my great-grandfather's uh, wife at the time uh, who, who said it. And now this is according to onlookers, they saw the police just ri- literally encircle the still. They, they they went all around the area, but never actually came into the place where the still actually was, and they didn't discover it, despite it being kind of there in in plain sight. So anyway, that was just uh, one of the one of the little stories there. So uh, possibly a bit of luck, but uh, there, there was uh, that story anyway. One of the things that I'm really picking up on is the it's kind of it's kind of maybe two things, I suppose, that go hand in hand. There's there's the oral tradition where, you know, the knowledge about distillation and and not just the knowledge about distillation, but the culture of tending the still, right? You know, it, it it's something that you're brought up with, you know, when the first time you get to be around this thing, I'm sure that it, it, it's 
it seems almost magical and these these elders who are actually you know pulling the strings and and making the cuts and doing all of these um you know technical things that at first from a distance as a child seem like magic then as you get to grow then you know you you learn that some of these things aren't necessarily magic but they're maybe perhaps more mechanical or chemical they're they're kind of moves that you can make um it, it seems like a very different way of learning the art and science of distillation than perhaps most people come to it today. I know a lot of people who are distillers, at least here in in my community here on the East Coast, tend to be engineers. They Many of them have spent time in the military, uh, either fixing or maintaining or operating heavy machinery. Uh, a lot of them have advanced technical degrees. Some of them are biochemists. Uh, very few of them uh, have the sort of background and deep history that you are bringing to it. So I think from, from our perspective here on the East coast, you know, that, or the coasts of the U S where things are very, um, mechanized and, and very, uh, tied to supply chain. And instead of being perhaps rebellious, tend to seek to kind of fall into these categories and fit neatly within the boxes what I'm hearing about your family history is that it's very different from that. We're all producing spirits of some sort, but to me, a lot of the character of what you're describing comes from that dual impulse of this is our heritage, it is our water of life, and sort of, pardon my French, the police. Yes, completely. And, uh, you know, it's... it's. Um it's interesting, you know, the, the conversation, I suppose, comes up every now and again, uh, just in general conversation with people, you know, and it's sort of like, um, how do you get passionate about things? And it's it's funny, if you grow up um, around something, it's it's kind of hard to say, how do you get passionate about it? But there's something really rich about when you're able to think back. And uh, I suppose you have these uh, moments where you think back, wow, actually, uh, it's amazing that that tradition has come all the way down through those different generations you kind of feel connected to your ancestors as a result you know and it's uh, it's it's quite an emotional uh, connection that you have with them and the struggles that they had you know in, in terms of uh, I mean it, it wasn't easy for them in terms of uh, making spirit because it was illicit or and it wasn't certainly easy I suppose as well the fact that they you know didn't have uh, freedom for for x amount of uh, you know generations now, that said as well, uh, you know, one of the, it, it probably just took the straw that broke the camel's back for me, you know, it was in 2011. And, and I don't mean it in a, in a negative sense, but it was the thing, the little spark that all that fuel, if you like, required to actually spur me on to actually, uh, you know, start a distillery. It, well, it certainly uh, inspired the, 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 uh, the thinking about, you know, doing a, a legitimate uh, putteen distillery. Um so I was just reading about uh, tequila, and what really fascinated me about it was the, the wonderful craftsmanship that was there and the misconceptions that people previously had about the spirit. And I thought, there's so many misconceptions around putin and, and fushke, and I thought we should really communicate to people and tell them through spirit and through story um, you know, what the real truth is as opposed to uh, people relying on um, unreliable information. So that was the kind of spur, the spur on. And I thought, this is, the, you know, you, you almost need to sometimes see it from the outside uh, to, to actually see it uh, from the inside. So you, you're looking at it from the outside and then you see, if you're in it, 
you, you know, it's almost like you can't see the wood for the trees, but then you step outside of it and it's like, it made uh, so much sense. So that started the, 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 the crazy journey. And I remember actually having a conversation with my grandfather. Like I said, we were very close and I, I wanted to actually go to the US and I knew that um, I had been there before, but I knew that craft distilling uh, was uh, beginning a renaissance. And I said, uh, wow, I must uh, check this out as part of research. And uh, before I, you know, uh, took any further steps, I said, I just wanted to kind of get his blessing, I guess, you know, to make sure that he would be happy, you know, with um, me going legitimate, so to speak. So he was uh, he was out in his um, uh, little garden or field just beside the, the house and uh, he was uh, digging potatoes. So I said to him, uh, I've, I've had this idea and uh he goes, okay, go on, go ahead. So I wasn't sure how he'd react, to be honest, you know. Uh, but I explained to him that I was thinking of starting a, you know, a legal distillery and, and taking the family craft and working it that way. And he said, well, uh, I'd be delighted, he said, if you did it. And if there's any way I can help, I certainly will. So he, he stood by that, in fact, and uh, it's really nice today. You can see it in the background there behind me, the logo. So that's a, uh, an image. Uh, well, the, the logo is based on an image of Jimmy, and uh, he uh, lived until he was 93 years old. So he only passed away there in 2020. So thankfully, he was able to see uh, the distillery up and running and progressing very well. So, uh, yeah, delighted that he got to, to see that much of it. Absolutely. Yeah. It seems like uh, those those first few runs you were describing where he was uh, playing the role of quality control. I'm sure that even though you were probably using more sophisticated equipment than uh, was being used during the the bulk of your family's distilling tradition, uh, he probably still had some wisdom to share. So I'm really glad that there was uh, it seems like a good bit of overlap between, you know, the uh, the the sort of rebellious tradition, the torch being passed to you in a, in a bit more of an official capacity. Uh, and I really like what you said about, you know, kind of viewing things from the outside, seeing like, ooh, there's all these misconceptions about poutine. And, uh, you know, perhaps we can be the ones to, through flavor and through the experience of tasting, perhaps correct some of these misconceptions. So, what are some of those misconceptions? And maybe this might be a good way for us to explain what poutine is as a category, because one of the things that I wrote down in some of the questions that I sent you is like, what is the deal with poutine? It, 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 vodka is one of these things that can be made from almost anything as long as it is uh, unaged and neutral. Then we have um, you know, certain different types of whiskeys that need to be made out of certain distillate bases. Of course, here in the U.S., we have bourbon. There's a lot of very strict rules about what constitutes bourbon whiskey and some of the little modifier words that you can stick onto that. Where does poutine fall in this landscape? And again, maybe maybe that will allow us to talk about some of these misconceptions that you've set out to correct. 100%. One of the great misconceptions, uh, and this is probably more amongst Irish people, they think that uh, a that uh, poutine is um, a potato-based spirit. And uh, just to be clear, were potatoes ever used in poutine? They were, but they would, generally speaking, have been an adjunct ingredient. Um, so you can't get enzymes out of uh, potatoes like you can out of grain to turn starches into sugar. So you would have to rely on the malt enzymes to turn those sugar, those starches into sugars. So I'll start out by saying that. So yes. 
and, and by the way, it was a, a much later part in the history. Just to be clear as well, in our family, we never did use potatoes. It was always a grain-based spirit. Now, when you go back to the original Aquavitae, and, and this is no secret, it's, it's uh, documented in historical documents, but the earliest form of Aquavitae was actually wine that was being imported, that was then being distilled. But then there was a shift to cereal. Because we were already, you know, brewing ales or beers or various uh, fermented uh, drinks from from grain, and then of course the main tradition in terms of cereal, and it's really these distillers were resourceful people. They 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 used what they what they had available to them, as opposed to trying to stick rigidly to any particular sort of rules or regulations. These rules and regulations came in later, and I think the reason they came in, and I, I fully agree with them, is to protect the integrity of the category so that we don't kind of lose sight of what, you know, poutine or whiskey is, uh, respectively, and uh, I, I think that's only fair. So the main ingredients in, uh, in, in poutine, uh, and it's kind of in this order, and you can use a mix of them, and it's basically what was available or what was sown in that particular year. And of course, uh, you know, these uh, distillers were normally farmers as well, so they had to do crop rotation. So uh, you wouldn't grow the same crop in the same field every year, but barley, oats, wheat, and rye would have been the primary cereals uh, used in the making of poutine. Uh, and each of them delivering a different flavor profile, each of them performing uh, differently in different soils so uh, for instance barley gave you the optimal uh, sort of uh, yield uh, optimal flavor and uh, you know then uh, by, by comparison then oats wouldn't give you as good a yield so you'd typically use it as an adjunct ingredient but it gave you creaminess and it gave you vibrancy so um wheat then uh, you know and sorry going back to the oats it was uh, quite a uh, resilient grain so it would grow in acidic soils as well um, and again a lot of west of ireland uh, while it is quite green <laughs> you know uh, it it still wouldn't be the most fertile of soils you know again it, it has a relative fertility but it did take a lot of mining and it'd be a harsh enough environment you know lots of rain lots of wind etc uh, lots of salt if you're close to the ocean and then the likes of wheat would be quite a severe crop on soil so you'd need really good soils for that to grow so for that reason it was further down the list uh, rye grew particularly well in, in uh, the sort of west of ireland soils as well uh, however you wouldn't use it in huge proportions because it did have the tendency uh, to burn out the pot stills if you use too much of it so uh, there was a a valid reason i suppose for not using a huge amount of that but uh worked very well um in terms of how it grew in, in the soils so they were the main the main cereals i can see based on the way that you're describing this with the crop rotation and going back to the notion that as a farmer somebody living this lifestyle in the part of ireland that you're describing you don't get as you said an a la carte experience if you're going to plant the crops, you need to rotate the crops. That means that this year's batch is not going to be exactly the same as last year's batch. On the other hand, over time and with the development of this tradition, you can also see how certain people with a particular talent for this craft would develop a reputation individually, and then also based on the strength of the wisdom that they're able to pass down over generations for being particularly talented poutine makers. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to bring us through those grains, because I think even though it's just a description of 
how much and what types are being used, I can still begin to get a picture of how this developed over time. And, you know, of course, the other thing about potatoes is that, you know, if we're looking at some of the dates that you're mentioning here, you know, 1324, if that's when distilling is beginning, you know, there were not potatoes in Ireland at this time. They were a new world crop and only brought over much later. So I'm I'm beginning to get a, a sense of how this tradition evolved much more so than I previously had. Now, I'm wondering here in the U.S., uh, a lot of terms and uh, some certain spirits categories have something to do with the type of still used. Now, obviously, poutine, the name of it refers very specifically to the size of the still. It's it's a small pot still. Um, And so I'm wondering if any of the the still technology or then perhaps the storage of the spirits after they come out of the still, does does any of that play into some of the misconceptions that there might be about poutine? Um, I think so. And uh, just one point, I suppose, that I have mentioned, and it ties into your question as well in terms of aging, etc. So uh, the method of moving uh, your finished spirit back in the day was by cask. Uh, you would then, of course, uh, bottle your, your, your poutine or your fushke, you know, out of a cask. So uh, you wouldn't necessarily bottle at the site of distilling. And uh, just to be absolutely clear, I suppose, uh, because the spirit would normally be sold fairly quickly after its making, uh, it, it meant it didn't spend very long in, in cask. But there would be a certain small influence, perhaps, of, of the cask uh, on the spirit. But nowhere near, I suppose, the influence of whiskey. And of course, we know, I suppose, in terms of whiskey, how that all happened. Uh, It was um, devised, I guess, to improve the quality of the whiskey, but also to improve the cash flow uh, perspective from the big distilleries. Uh, Again, that later became law because they recognized, well, this actually creates a barrier to entry into the category, and it also protects the standards of the category by by having some sort of standardization. But anyway, just uh, on, on the poutine side of things, the current, um, I suppose, uh, modern definition is that you can't uh, age poutine any longer than 10 weeks in a wooden cask. So, and again, of course, Irish whiskey must be aged for a minimum of three years. So just to kind of uh, distinguish them nowadays, uh, whereas both of them were clear uh, spirits in, in the in the early days. Now, another little thing, I suppose, and this is kind of uh, ties into the ingredients. Uh, we use this wildflower called bog bean in our poutine and actually that's referenced in the red book of Osri in 1324 so while yes our family were using it uh, they didn't invent it this this is something that was handed down you know through multiple multiple generations and uh, the, the monks um, uh, supposedly were using it uh, as a medicinal element but also as a flavor element so there was many reported kind of benefits of the bog bean and, and interestingly as well from having uh, people from different regions around Ireland in uh, some of them, most of them, by the way, don't uh, recognize uh, bog bean, but the, the few that do uh, would mention, oh, my grandmother or my grandfather used to literally make a medicine uh, out of that uh, botanical, but it wasn't included in poutine per se. So it's, a, it's, it's funny how the, these uh, various evolutions of the tradition have, have uh, survived. So in terms of terminology and stuff, uh, the condenser in a uh, poutine still, the, the part that uh, turns the vapors from the pot into liquids would be known as a worm uh, here uh, in Ireland as opposed to a condenser. And, and then funnily enough, the line arm uh, was just simply called an arm in the Irish language or arm. And uh, then you'd have a cap. And a lot of these caps uh, would have been wooden as opposed to copper. But 
really important that you'd have a copper line arm and a copper condenser and your pot would also be made of copper. So they were aware without the science or, you know, that kind of wisdom, they, they, they knew that the copper had a positive influence on the spirit. So uh, it's incredible how intuitive they were about their, about their craft. Uh, the way they sealed these stills as well uh, was with the material called lutein. So that's what they would apply to the joints. And lutein is a mixture of flour, porridge and water. And, um, of course, uh, I have to mention, of course, the tradition, which uh, then started in the U.S., according to history anyway, it was Irish and Scottish distillers uh, who migrated, who continued uh, distilling, and also wanted to avoid the authorities as well, uh, made it at night, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, and uh, according to, to the, some of the, the literature, it's where the term moonshine originates. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. I've been a customer for about a year now, and I can say without hesitation that the delivery of frozen farm fresh meat that I receive from Adam and his team makes me do a little happy dance every month. Not only does Near Country offer grass-fed beef and pasture-raised pork, but they also have an awesome selection of chicken and seafood. And the best part is it's all local and it's all sustainably farmed and harvested. You can customize every order or simply leave the selection in their capable hands like I do. Near Country even offers fun add-ons like bones for soups and stocks, as well as special holiday offerings like turkeys, brisket, and more. If you live in the Mid-Atlantic, that's D.C., Maryland, or Virginia, and you're sick of the same bland selection at the grocery store, or you're looking to drastically improve the quality of the protein in your diet, Near Country Provisions has you covered. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, at checkout. This is easily one of the biggest quality of life improvements I've made in the last year or two, so I hope you'll give Near Country Provisions a shot and let me know what you think. Now, back to the show. Yeah, and I, I do actually recall watching a, a television show where somebody was actually creating very uh, similar substance to what you just described, the lutein, to uh, to seal some of these, you know, some of these engineered um, kind of cobbled together stills in the woods. So I do think that that tradition has definitely carried forward through here to uh, to the United States. It's interesting to me, uh, I, I, I noticed that you described earlier 10 weeks for Pachin, no, no more than 10 weeks in, in cask. Uh, I personally appreciate that that's, you know, an attempt to stay true to the history of, of the spirit. Uh, and then we have three years minimum for Irish whiskey. Right. Um, what happens if one decides one would like to leave a distillate in a cask for somewhere between 10 weeks and three years? Then it, it's neither putzine and it's, and, it, and it's not whiskey either. So it, it would be considered, I guess, Irish spirits. Uh, mm. So really, when you start out the production of any uh, product here in terms of the, the regulations, uh, you need to give prior uh, notification to your uh, revenue control officer, which is basically the equivalent of your TTB officers, to let them know that you're uh, making a certain product on a certain day. So once you write it into the sort of documents, uh, to the best of my knowledge, you can't really change what it will become. Now, you'd have to get permission, uh, I, I would say, to say, look, if your putting went over 10 weeks, that you would then have to get permission to call it 
Irish spirit. So yes, you followed all the rules in terms of, you know, making it in, in your bonded warehouse, etc. However, it doesn't fit the legal definition of either now. So the only likely kind of uh, term is probably Irish spirit or something else, but you couldn't call it either. I think it's valid though that the 10 week rule uh, would apply uh, given the, the the history of poutine and, and uh, you know, while some may argue, look, it would open up innovation, etc. Really, I think it's uh, more important to stay true to tradition, which is that poutine was an unaged spirit because otherwise, you know, what would uh, differentiate it from whiskey, its uh, earlier predecessor or, you know, the, the, they were the very same thing. And of course, the reason they're different now is because of that evolution. Well, if, if uh, something like that ever does happen to you where you maybe leave something in, in cask a little too long and, and realize after the fact, then you just give me a call and <laughs> maybe we can we can put together some sort of mantra to uh, to, to confuse the, uh, the revenue officer um, as some sort of prayer like you were describing earlier. Maybe that'll work. Um, so you so i want to take this notion of the bog bean which is fascinating I, I love that it originates in that original 1324 text that you were describing earlier it seems like uh you know a botanical of sorts and you know so it goes it, it goes in with the masher it goes into the still uh it exerts uh, a flavor into the finished product which uh, i'm guessing is you know one of the the hallmarks of your product now you also create a gin which involves more botanicals what makes your gin uh sort of unique and reflective of the the place where it is made yeah and uh great question i suppose the the, the first thing is um we we started out making poutine here so if we were, how would I put it, thinking uh, completely commercially uh, when we began, um, we probably would have decided just to make gin at the beginning and maybe make poutine as an adjunct product. But we we went straight in with poutine. And I have to tell you, uh, people still uh, primarily recognize us uh, from that perspective. It's, it's really, I think people uh, recognize that, A, we were true to our tradition, um, and uh, so there was a, there's a certain amount of respect that uh, came with that. So we're, we're thankful for that. Uh, again, wasn't really pre-planned. We just, uh, you know, uh, blissfully unaware, I guess, of uh, these commercial realities. We just started making poutine because that's what we made. Um, now, of course, obviously the opportunity, of course, is that it's a very different and uh, poorly understood spirit. So there's a, a lot of opportunity there. But uh, in terms of gin, we were inspired, I guess, because, uh, you know, our poutine already contained a botanical. And we know that uh, previous poutines uh, and aquavitae would have contained various botanicals. So we thought we should make a gin that encapsulates Connemara based on our botanical distilling tradition. So we tested a number of uh, we'll say iterations um, so we then selected four wild flowers and herbs that we uh, now collect and harvest in Connemara uh, so we, we select them uh, now the one exception is the bog bean we can pick that one all year round uh, the other three we pick them when they're in season which is generally speaking late summer early autumn so bog myrtle is one of those um, hawberry is another one and heather flower is another one and of course the bog bean so bog bean is used fresh the other three are collected and dried and uh, then 
used throughout the year for uh, various gin distillations. But really, you know, uh, I'm going to quote uh, quite a famous bartender here in Ireland. Uh, a, they have uh, multiple awards in the Vintage Cocktail Club in, in Dublin. And uh, uh, after tasting our gin, he said, uh, really, he said, it's like taking a walk in the Connemara countryside. Uh, that's what this gin is like, you know. So, and and uh, recently as well, we were delighted and uh, full credit to Jimmy, my brother, the head distiller, for his, uh, you know, incredibly passionate and tireless work. Um, so the gin actually got um, a gold medal at the World Gin Awards uh, recently for the best uh, contemporary Irish gin. So we were we were delighted with that. It's a it's a blind um, tasting competition, so it's really good. Um, so hopefully that answers the the botanical. Uh, sort of influence yeah that's wonderful congratulations on that it's a, it's a great competition I'm, I'm very familiar and uh one final follow-up bog bean i don't suppose it's an actual legume is it a root is it a what exactly is the be the bean or the bog bean yeah so the bean part i'm guessing is kind of maybe the fruit uh not a fruit as such but this kind of bean which is on the plant uh late summer after it flowers so it flowers during may the rest of the year it's just a stem it almost resembles like asparagus or bamboo uh, but uh, it's a it's a pliable uh, sort of bamboo. It would be more like asparagus in its texture. So that grows all year round. So we pick that stem, and this stem is submerged in water, and it's only the flowering parts which is visible uh, above the surface of the water during the uh, during the summer. So in in Latin it's called minianthus. Uh, so in case anybody wants to look it up, but uh, uh, over your uh, neck of the woods, uh, Eric, uh, they they may refer to it colloquially as buck bean. So it's just that we would call it bog bean here because of obviously bog and bog lands and uh, where it uh, where it grows. I have encountered something very similar by the seaside uh here they call it uh either sea bean or uh i believe glass wart and so it's it's a smaller probably in the same family um but yes it, it very much reminds me of what you're describing so now that we've hit the pachin or the poitzin sorry and uh the uh the gin the konamara gin what about the whiskeys that you have launched? Because I am sure that uh, in the distilling landscape right now in Ireland, whiskey is probably one of the more competitive categories. So what is the Mickle distillery approach to Irish whiskey? You know, it's it's uh, the, our approach, I suppose, to Irish whiskey is the Fushke approach. And... Um, so what's uh, Fushke all about? Well, well, firstly, I suppose we have uh, two great distilling traditions here in Galway uh, and Connemara. Well, well, they're the, the two traditions. So uh, you had these uh, legitimate Parliament whiskey distilleries. Uh, by the way, the reason I mentioned Parliament is because that's kind of how people differentiated between uh, legal whiskey that was tax paid and licensed versus the illicit whiskey, which was made in the mountains. Um, but uh, yeah, so Connemara had its own whiskey tradition or fushka tradition. We've kind of delved into that a bit in terms of poutine. Uh, so that is mixed mash bills and smaller casks and uh, peating. So we're one of the few Irish distilleries that are continuing this uh, peating or peat influenced uh, whiskey. So we still cut our own turf, still harvest it, etc. 
small quantities, uh, so you don't need large quantities of, of turf to uh, to do the, uh, the, the the malting or the peating of the malt. Um, in terms of Galway City, then you know there's this wealth of uh, tradition in Galway of legitimate Parliament distilleries. Um, some of these distilleries uh, were selling uh, whiskey, um, you know, throughout the world. Uh, this is back in the time in the early 20th century, up to the early 20th century, when uh, when Irish whiskey was the global global market leader. So Irish, we just paint the the the, the, uh, the broad picture. 60% of uh, global whiskey uh, market share was Irish. Okay, now we only have approximately 5% market share, but uh, thankfully. We also have uh, one of the fastest growing spirit categories in the world. So it's, it's uh, great to see such a uh, strong growth in the category. Um, so in terms of uh, the, the Galway City tradition then, so if you look at uh, some of the place names and you look at some of the history of the port, it's it's got this tremendous, uh, I suppose, history of uh, trading with Latin Europe. So that is basically France, Portugal and Spain. So. We used to import huge quantities of wines, fortified wines, and spirits. Great news for the local distilleries that they had this uh, steady supply of seasoned casks. Now, the trade, I suppose, in Galway, obviously there was the local trade within the city walls. And but, However, it's important to note as well that many of uh, these uh, liquids or, or products were being sold, not only in Galway, but throughout Connacht and even throughout Ireland. And um, as well as that, uh, there, there was a gateway for these products as well to go to the UK into England because it was cheaper from a tax perspective to, to do so, right? So uh, for instance, um, we, we have two independent bottlings, which I'll briefly describe now in a second and what inspired each of them. Um, but we imported, for instance, more Bordeaux red wine, uh, just so that people can identify with well, what does he mean by wine and fortified wine. Uh, so in, in terms of red wine, we imported more Bordeaux red wine than any other Irish port towards the late Middle Ages. And uh, we would have been the second uh, biggest importer if you combine Ireland and England uh, together. Uh, so, you know, huge, you can imagine that's a huge amount of uh, Bordeaux red wine coming in. And it's fascinating as well that uh, not only was there that amount of uh, Bordeaux red wine coming in and, uh, you know, the those other fortified wines, such as uh, different types of sherries and ports. Um, so uh, we will touch on the on that uh, influence in a moment. But uh, when you go to Bordeaux, uh, many of the chateaux or a number of the chateaux certainly have Irish surnames and Irish ancestry. So it's amazing the the links that ex, uh, exist between Galway and uh, those uh, chateaux and those vineyards. Similarly, then in terms of Spain, for example, a uh, huge amount of uh, Spanish genetics here around Galway. So there's quite a, an interesting documentary done um, on, on this subject um, approximately six, seven years ago. And uh, they did literally did um, genetic testing on people, obviously, with their they were part of the documentary and they were just uh, verifying and, and checking, I suppose, was there as much uh, Spanish genetics there as was thought. And, and fascinatingly, there was. So it's incredible, uh, you know, in terms of the, the mixing of cultures that goes on. So no surprises uh, when people come to Galway, uh, and I hear it all the time, you know, they say Dublin is great, you know, they've been to other parts of Ireland, but then they come to Galway. And look, you know, I, I'm biased, of course, but uh, just don't rely on me, rely on what everyone else is saying. But um, there is a certain friendliness here. There's a certain... Um, 
culture here, a certain openness here. And you can be anybody uh, here, I suppose. It doesn't matter whether you're uh, wealthy or, or poor. You can all actually have, uh, you know, and I think this is a, a really great barometer of where, how open a, a city or a place is. Can uh, individuals from uh, every kind of uh, segment of society, can they mix in the same place? And the answer to that in Galway is uh, yes, you know, and, and you'll see people uh, sort of having every kind of conversation there, you know, um, around Galway city centre. So, uh, yeah, it, it certainly does feel different. And again, when you, uh, as, a, as a local, it's when you uh, leave and uh, go somewhere else that you're reminded of uh, you know what is uh, different about the place but uh, in terms of uh, the we we are laying down whiskey here at the moment uh, only in small quantities we're laying down uh, five 50 liter casks per week and you're probably wondering uh, why are you filling it into 50 liter casks is that traditional and i suppose to to answer that uh, it is um so for instance i'm going to just mention one distillery you know we, we wouldn't have time to, to to mention them all but uh one of the uh, famous galway distilleries was called a um called burke's quarter barrel distillery so for anyone coming to galway the modern uh, way of uh, well the the the, um, the site is now the uh, the jury's in hotel, but historically that used to be Burke's Quarter Barrel Distillery. It's down at the Spanish Arch. So the reason they were nicknamed Quarter Barrel Distilleries, essentially they sold, amongst other casks, they sold quarter barrels. And just to remind your your listeners, um, you know, I don't, I suppose I don't maybe need to, but just to emphasize it, um, the trade for whiskey pre sort of 20th century wasn't from uh, in in a bottled form. It was uh, in cask form from the distilleries, and of course, uh, those casks would have been bottled locally. Now again, that shifted as uh, the distilleries became more concerned with the, uh, you know, building brands and uh, retaining the authenticity of the liquid, etc. Um, so as as things became more regulated and tightened up, but uh, back then it was whiskey by the cask, and um, interestingly as well, uh, the carters from uh, the distillery would take would take uh, barrels or casks from the distillery to the whiskey warehouses. And they used to get these uh, Carter's coins, right? And uh, that was the, the sort of currency that they would exchange at the end of the week so that they could get paid in in pounds at the time, uh, before, way before we had the euro and whatnot. Now, we've actually uh, recreated uh, those coins and uh, they are, actually have uh, one of them here. Uh, so, uh, on the, I don't know if this is visible, but that's uh, one side of it, and that's obviously our, our logo. But if you look at the back of it, uh, and this is like you'd find on the old coin, uh, one of these uh, sort of uh, ships uh, coming into into Galway Bay. So it's it's a bit of, uh, you know, I, I think it's combining uh, the best of uh, the, the, the two traditions, our tradition and what was done um, historically. But anyway, we're laying down in, in 50 litre casks. Um, most of the whiskey we're currently producing is actually uh, being put towards our cask ownership offering. So there's 240 of these 50 litre casks in it. And uh, thankfully, the uptake has been very strong since we launched it late last year. And... Um, so it's very customizable. Uh, people can choose in terms of uh, 
they can choose a single malt. They can choose a, a modern form of the single pot still. But we also have, uh, there's only a number of these left, but uh, we also have um, a mash bill, which is a pure pot still. So that's before, of course, the name of a single pot still had to be changed from a, a consumer perspective. Um, the, the reason it was changed is because people felt the word pure may have been uh, misleading. But that was just the old term for a uh, single pot still. So there's, uh, there are the three mash bills, and then there's five different types types of casks. Uh, you've got your traditional uh, ex-bourbon, uh, Oloroso, Sherry, Pedro Jimenez, Sherry, Port. And one of the things that's permitted in Irish whiskey is the use of woods that aren't oak, which of course isn't permitted in every whiskey making nation. So we do have uh, one cask that uh, fits into that uh, segment and it's a, a virgin Spanish chestnut cask. It's just, I suppose, to offer um, you know that diversity there for for people but uh and a uh, key thing there the mash bills they're all peated and again it's our kind of our peat that we're using so we had started laying down whiskey there in um 2020 and uh, before we uh, even contemplated the idea of doing independent bottling uh we're all aware of what independent bottling is it's buying whiskey from an existing distillery and either bottling it right there right then or influencing it and, and i suppose because we were uh, already a whiskey distillery and because of you know i suppose our tradition uh we really wanted to whatever we were doing to influence it as much as possible so uh we chose our own finishing casks and finished uh, both whiskies that we uh, created uh, or finished rather uh, we um we chose the casks and sourced the casks from them and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on them now in a second but uh, just conscious you might have uh, questions on any of the aforementioned no, I, th I think it's uh, fascinating to hear that your barrel aging program is very much in this in the same spirit of honoring the the place where uh, you're currently operating, the traditions that existed beforehand. Um, I honestly, it's, I, I'm just engrossed in the storytelling because a lot of the storytelling that we get around Irish whiskey is very much funneled to us by a handful of big brands that are not necessarily Galway centric. So it's just a little slice of culture that, you know, being here in America, I'm, I've just never been exposed to. So it seems like, uh, you know, you're, you're doing an interesting thing, at least from the, the American standpoint of like actually, actually, um, you know, selling these quarter casks as casks, which is interesting to me. Obviously you've got some interesting barrel finishes. The, uh, Virgin Spanish chestnut is, is pretty cool as well. I'm, I'm very interested in non oak, uh, barrels, in general, I think uh, if we were to zoom out and, you know, if I had an omniscient view of the overall world distilling cultures, I think a much larger portion than we would otherwise suspect of the overall historical cask finishing percentage would be non-oak especially if you go back far enough in time. So I'm, I would love to see uh, so many more operations today playing around with that. And I think we will, uh, especially with the way that the Cooperage market is currently headed. Um, but yeah, finish us off. What, what, what is the, uh, what is the rest of the, uh, the Mickle whiskey program look like? So, um, th that's, I suppose the, um, the, what do you call it? The, uh, the, the, the cask program. Uh, so three mash bills, five different types of casks, 
And each of those casts, then you're looking at uh, approximately 90 bottles coming out if you bought it 46%. But people can they can bottle it at cast strength if they wish, and the bottles will be personalized. So uh, really, it's a, it's about joining us on this uh, journey. It is the first whiskey in Colway in over 100 years, and it's really limited, the, the quantity overall that's being laid down. Now, we do have plans for a newer facility in South Connemara, going back to the roots of uh, where we're from. Uh, so I, I'm not at liberty, I suppose, to, to mention uh, every detail about it. But uh, what people uh, can gauge at this point is that we're certainly going to have a, a very a big presence in terms of the uh, the facility and how much we can actually produce. So this new facility will be capable of uh, producing, uh, you know, over half a million uh, litres of uh, pure, pure, pure alcohol per year, which is the equivalent of 1.5 million bottles of uh, whiskey per year. And, uh, you know, this is really going to breathe, uh, you know, uh, life back into this uh, region of Connemara, you know, going to provide employment for for locals. And in terms of the whiskey that we're going to be producing, again, really focused on authenticity in terms of most, most of this whiskey is going to be peated. And uh, again, we will hang on to the traditions of um, those casks that would have been traditionally used. But um, so anyway, just I thought I'd uh, finish that one off. Just in case anyone is interested, they can just reach out uh, via the website if they have any interest in those casks, because really, I suppose the people were trying to, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, I suppose, attract uh, to join us uh, would be those that uh, have uh, a genuine interest in, in whiskey and uh, a genuine interest in something that is uh, very authentic and uh, very different. So, um, and again, I, I think uh, people like the, uh, the, 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 the lineage and the, the family story that's there. So look, it's, it's a really exciting journey. You know, everyone who uh, has already bought a cask, they're, they're really excited uh, with us. Any case, uh, they can reach out there to us. So um, the other piece then is the two independent whiskey bottlings. Uh, so Invrin is the Connemara style of uh, whiskey. Uh, like I said, it's independently bottled. Uh, full transparency on that uh, particular bottling is on our website. So we want it to be super uh, transparent in terms of what we're doing. So uh, somebody can just go to our website, download the uh, actual full uh, disclosure of where the whiskey comes from, which casks were used, which percentages, etc. So it's it's incredibly transparent. And uh, look, you know, to be honest, we've been uh, really commended on it uh, by the whiskey community, thankfully. And um, so that's a five part peated blend. It contains uh, two grain whiskies, uh, uh, double distilled single malt, triple distilled peated single malt, and a single pot still. Um, four of the five components were aged in ex bourbon, and one of the grain whiskey components was aged in uh, virgin uh, American oak. And then uh, we vatted all those components together. All of them were at least uh, three years old, uh, a lot of them uh, four years old plus. And then we vatted them together and uh, we put them into our finishing casks. So Pedro Jimenez, of course, because of the Spanish influence here in Galway, um, wanted to emphasize the fruity notes of the whiskey. And then uh, ex-bourbon, but ex-bourbon with a twist, we, uh, we resized these ex-bourbon casks to uh, sort of mimic uh, the, I suppose, again, 
kind of like those quarter barrels to emphasize more of the wood. So again, obviously, the more the smaller the cask, the greater the wood influence on the cask. So uh, just wanted to introduce a, a bit of that, uh, you know, tradition in there. And uh, because we didn't have, you know, full control over how peated uh, the whiskey was, we wanted to give it a little touch of Connemara turf. So our heritage poutine spent less than 10 weeks in a virgin Spanish chestnut cask. And then we took that virgin Spanish chestnut cask and put some of the vatted whiskey together in there. And of course, we left them for nine months. We, we initially thought the whiskey would be ready at about six months old, but six months uh, finishing, but uh, it, it wasn't. So we said, this is uh, going to be right. It's not going to, you know, this isn't uh, going to go to market until it's right. So we left it the extra number of months. And uh, thankfully, by month nine, uh, we were uh, thrilled with the result, you know, in terms of uh, the, the flavor and the finish and the, the aroma of the whiskey. So uh, that's the Inverin one, the Connemara one. And again, it's peated. Uh, then we had a very typical, and hopefully this kind of re-emphasizes what the differences are in terms of Connemara Fushka versus Galway City Whiskey. So the Galway City Whiskey is a very typical pot still, uh, triple distilled, mixed mash bill. So you have um, uh, half malted barley, half unmalted barley. So an abundance of spice, an abundance of oils, and uh, it's uh, originally aged in uh, ex-bourbon and then finished in two different types of casks. I've mentioned already uh, that Bordeaux red wine was a bit of a favorite around here, so we decided to finish it in Bordeaux red wine. But we wanted to give it just a textural kiss, I guess, of uh, peating. So we used a peated quarter cask. So that's a 125-liter cask then to finish it in as well. So it's a 75%, 25% split uh, Bordeaux to peated quarter cask. And uh, they're two incredibly distinct whiskies, you know. Um, so it's great to give people uh, a very different flavor from, you know, relatively speaking, um, not that big a region, you know. So you have Connemara and then Galway City just on the doorstep. So, and yet they produce these uh, very different uh, styles of whiskey. Now they share similarities, but it's amazing that they're distinct. Yeah, those are fascinating, I guess, sort of entry points. Uh, it's it's very exciting, of course, that you're getting ready, you know, kind of in the early phases of launching a, a larger facility. And uh, nonetheless, I, I think that the, the processes that you were just describing and the flavor building and storytelling that you're doing is very much consistent. Uh, you know, it sort of goes back to your grandfather as that storyteller, right? So I, I think if there's one way in which the what we might call the official government sanctioned version of uh, your family distilling practice is uh, paying tribute to what came before it. It's that you're continuing the legacy of storytelling. Uh, that to me is my big takeaway here. Uh, so for those who are interested, obviously you said go to the website if you're interested in learning more about the uh, independent bottlings or about the, the cask program. Uh, where in general can people in the... Uh, great country of Ireland or in the UK or the EU or elsewhere in the world, who has access on the shelf to your products? And, and maybe are there any plans for uh, entering different markets as we go here? Yes. So just immediately to satisfy people's uh, thirst, uh, the quickest way I think um, would be to go to our website. We have a uh, a new fully e-commerce website and uh, just uh, to give a full mention and full credit there to uh, Ross here, my business partner 
and uh, ably assisted uh, by our whiskey uh, specialist and head of domestic sales, uh, Mark McLaughlin. So there's uh, uh, two very influential people there working on uh, who, who did this uh, wonderful website build. So uh, people can go and um, you know buy directly from the website and uh, the website will ship uh, not that the website does it personally, but uh, we ship throughout uh, throughout Europe and uh, we also do Northern Ireland. Uh, UK is a little bit tricky at the moment, and uh, but we are working on the US. So in terms of markets, we uh, have plans to enter. Uh, we are already selling uh, some of our products in the UK. We're already selling our full range in uh, Germany. Uh, in, in a small capacity, but in terms of um, you know, for instance, I, I know that uh, perhaps uh, a lot of your uh, listenership would be uh, US based, but uh, we certainly have plans to enter into the the US market. Uh, so we're still having conversations with um, with uh, different importers, and uh, but uh, one of the the key things that will be happening is the recruitment of uh, as, as, you know someone looking after the uh, the, the international uh, markets. Uh, for us, you know, so basically, when when all those uh, things slot into place, uh, we will uh, hopefully be on your shores uh, fairly quickly. Now, uh, if people uh, want to buy in the meantime, they can go to irishmalts.com uh, or .ie, uh, and they can pick up our products there, and they do ship uh, to the US. But uh, uh, we do, of course, uh, want to have proper physical presence on shelves. Uh, whether it's bar shells or off license or liquor store shells, I should I should say. Uh, and uh, again, we'll probably take it uh, state by state and city by city, um, as opposed to you know, uh, don't expect us to be uh, nationwide in in year one. But uh, I think with the e-commerce and the way it's opening up as well, that may be a strong possibility for people to get access, you know, uh, over a short period of time. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, if you're looking for places in the U.S. with uh, surprisingly lax uh, or we'll call friendly inviting liquor laws, uh, here where I am in Washington, D.C. is often referred to as the Wild West. So uh, pretty much anything goes here. So if you're looking for a big city on the East Coast with uh, a very enthusiastic set of bartenders who are excited to get their hands on uh, great new products, then uh, maybe maybe we'll find uh, our paths crossing here in the not too distant future. Um, I, better so, make a, I better make a note of it. And uh, I, is it uh, true that, um, that uh, was it George Washington who had uh, his own uh, distillery as well and uh, a very indeed. influential character in li- early, very early liquor laws? Yes, yes. And the irony is that he was forced to, to uh, put down a rebellion of uh, unhappy distillers uh, very early on in his uh, his presidency. So there, there's a little bit of irony there because, yes, right across the river from D.C., he does have his uh, his legacy distilling operation there. Um, so, Parik, uh, thank you so much for um, taking the time with me. Do you have time for one or two quick lightning round questions? Go ahead. I do. All right. So... We've been talking straight spirits here for almost the entire time. What's your favorite cocktail? And if you don't have a favorite of all time, what's maybe a cocktail that you've been uh, getting into recently? Um, I'm a big fan of uh, old fashions and uh, failing an old fashioned, depending on the occasion, uh, I would probably go for a sour. Ah, beautiful. Uh, Sour... What is your acid there? I, you know, the sour is a, is a very large category. You've got your margaritas, you've got your whiskey sours. Are you a lemon, a lime? Yeah, I would, uh, to be honest, uh, I'd go for poutine sour and uh, I would uh, use lemon juice. 
egg white sugar syrup uh, of course the obligatory uh, dry shake uh, followed by the uh, shake with ice and double strain it and uh, you could use some like um, maybe peach or apricot bitters uh, you know just for just on the top uh, so I wouldn't use Angostura necessarily with the with the poutine sour Oh, the man knows what he wants. Uh, we, we, you, you led with just sort of a sour, and then we ended up with a with a work of art here. I like it. Uh, and then, do you have any controversial views or beliefs in the spirits world? <laughs> do I have controversial views? I'm sure I do. Um, I, I really think that um, you know anybody who's um, you know involved in the industry that uh, they should have to be. Uh, you know, transparent and authentic. So uh, any loopholes, I think, that permit people to use kind of uh, smoke and mirrors. Uh, uh, and maybe that's not controversial at all, but I think uh, that uh, people should have to be uh, transparent, you know, in the interest of the in the interest of the consumer. Well, if we can find counterexamples, I, I suppose it's controversial, at least to some out there. So, uh, Parik, I, I really appreciate the time you've taken here with me. I, I've gotten a really good sense of you and your ethos and the flavors that you are working so, so hard to preserve and to share with a lot of people. Uh, I learned a lot today, not only about uh, uh, Fushka and uh, and Putsin in general, but but about the uh, the Kunamara and the Galway spirits in particular. So thank you for sharing that. And uh, really quickly before we head out, what are the best ways for our listeners to uh, engage with you on social media? Uh, so our handle is at Mikkel Distillery. We're on Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we're on Twitter as well. But we're kind of more active, I guess, on the likes of Instagram or Facebook. And uh, in a professional sense, if anybody wants to link up with us, we're also on LinkedIn. They'll find us at Mikkel Distillery. And uh, so that's the, the best way to find us. I think we'll wrap it up here so that uh, so that I can let you uh, wrap up your day. I know that you're several hours ahead of us here. But uh, Parik, I just wanted to thank you uh, once again for being a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Thanks a million for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. 
This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed. Poitzin and Irish Whiskey Insights, courtesy of Parik O'Grillish, founder and director of Mickle Distillery in Galway, Ireland, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2022.